But I, I grew up not poor, but, you know, one of nine children, very middle class, and uh, parents which struggled to some degree, not only financially, but, you know, also interpersonally. And what I heard constantly was debates about money. So I, as a child, when I saw my parents disagreeing, the thought process in my head was always, you know, if only I can just stick my hand into my pocket and give them, and give them money, I can solve this problem, I can end this fight. So there was definitely a drive inside me to make money. I didn't know how much that was, but there was definitely coming in, uh, into my adolescence and teenage years, I knew I wanted to make money. I have an older brother which went into business, and I, he, was, he was successful fairly quickly, and that gave me a taste of it. However, there's been a constant wrestling match over the last number of years, and I'll share one, act, one anecdote about that, a constant wrestling match in terms of how much earning is compatible with the life I, I want. So several years ago, I got married and started a family, and during that period of time, I was going through my most difficult business years, and it was kind of curious to me. I started my business when I was 19 years old. I made m- more money pretty much every year from then till I was 30 or 31, and then I hit a, a wall. While that was going on, I went to a four-day retreat to work on myself, and I realized there was this belief inside me that was affecting me in business was that if I raise my kids with money, I'll screw them up. And and that belief came to the forefront, almost was the reason I was sabotaging some of the business success because I had that belief. And during it, the facilitator helped me get to this place of poverty has hurt many more people than wealth has. So, you know... We, we, I hear the struggle, but you certainly don't want to sabotage everything, and figuring out how to integrate it into your life is much better challenge than figuring out how to live with poverty and raise kids with poverty, and there was a shift after that. So I would say that this is a struggle. I'd love to hear what Vasu has to say about this. Yeah, I think there's a difference between, that you're highlighting between meeting the basic needs and when, it, when is it too much? When have you, do you have what you need? How do you know when your kind of cup runneth over when you should give to others? What's your experience been, Bowser? Yeah, I, I kind of grew up, you know, probably pretty similar to Ellie. Um, like I said, ne- never poor, never felt poor. Um, my, my parents both worked, and I'm, you know, they never let us know that they were struggling. When I think back now, you know, knowing how much money they made then and had two kids and were immigrants in the U.S. and then moved back to India and lost their home here due to the earthquake in L.A. Like, again, I was too young at the time, but now when I think back to all of that, I go, wow, like, you know, I never knew ever that we we may have struggled, and, and they did a great job of making sure that my sister and I never felt that. Um, but I feel like that lack of not having any luxuries per se, whereas they, they always took care to make sure that I went to the best schools and therefore everyone around me, you know, was very well to do. And so I, I would always go to their homes and see these giant palatial homes in India, especially, you know, in India, there's, there's no greater, um, sort of stark difference between the rich and the poor than you will see in India. You've got the most expensive home in the world in Mumbai overlooking the largest slum in the world. It's a two billion dollar home. And right outside of it is the biggest slum in the world. And, and so, you know, I would see all these kids in my class with all this money, and I felt like, wow, like when I grow up, that's what I want. I want to make sure that I'm super rich and successful. Um, and, and so, you know, when I graduated college, 
I, I don't, while I will say that money certainly drove me to some extent, I also just feel like, for me, quality of life and just being happy every day is, and doing what I love is far more important than money. So if you offered me a job for a million bucks and I had to go work at a bank, or you offered me, you know, $150,000, but I literally got to do what I loved every day and I got to spend two hours a day at lunchtime playing basketball, then I would choose the 150 grand over the million every time. But if you gave me the choice between a million and like 50,000 or 75,000 having to live in New York City, like that's the point at which I go, well, no, I can't do that. Like I, you know, quality of life still at a certain point is not good enough to give up sort of that material pursuit. But I do believe that there is a point, and they've done a lot of studies about this. Right? I think the national average, if I remember, for happiness was something like seventy-five or $80,000. And they said, and that's obviously mean across the country because in, in New York City, eighty grand is not getting you anywhere. But across the rest of the country, it was literally that if you made seventy-five or eighty grand, you were you were living a pretty comfortable life, and and every dollar above that did not make you any happier. And I think at a certain point above a certain level, it actually made you less happy because you probably start to think about a lot of things. Oh, I got to manage this money. What am I going to do with it? Where do I make investments? Um, and so for me. You know, I feel like over the course of my life, having spent you know, the, the early years looking at people who had a lot of money, then making some, then dealing with incredibly wealthy people as investors, and sort of seeing how they operate, um, and seeing that they were all just a little weird and a little crazy. And, and it just, I, I always joke to people, I say, I've never met a billionaire who isn't nuts. Like, it, it just seems crazy to me. Like, did something happen when you get that many zeros in your bank account? Do you just go a little crazy? Because um, I haven't met a, a sort of normal one yet. Um, and so I think I've gotten to the point where I believe that you need to have the basics to be, and the basics meaning, you know, if you're living in New York, you probably have to make a couple hundred thousand dollars to be happy. And, and beyond that, I don't necessarily know that if you're striving and killing yourself every day that you're living your best life. Um, I, I actually think that you might be degrading your quality of life at that point. Um, and, so, and so it's a constant battle for me being a venture capitalist. I mean, in my, in the, literally in the title of my, of my business card, it, it says I'm a, uh, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist, right? And so I struggle between looking at that and every day looking at all the social justice issues in this country and the homelessness in New York. And, and it's just, it's hard sometimes to, to just put those two things together and ask yourself, like, are you just a terrible person for, on a daily basis, wanting to just keep making investments and, and make money for your investors? And, and, and meanwhile, there's all these people struggling. Like, at, at what point do you draw the line? And I, I, I'm too young, I think, to even, to even know and have had enough time to think about these things. But those are the things that I think about every now and then. Let's play the devil's advocate here because there's got to be people listening, and we're on equal footing with Dove Tuzman. We've got our amazing guests tonight, which we're going to go more into the background. Masuko Carney was just speaking, Ellie Nash calling in from New York and Miami, respectively. You guys have had tremendous success in, financially in your lives. Let me play devil's advocate. If you're listening to the show, you're hearing these guys talk about, hey, if you've got a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you're okay. Uh, you know, talking about, you know, when, when enough is enough, when, you know, but people, people are struggling out there. And for most of us, the, the, the raw motivation 
for financial gain is what gets us up in the morning, what gets us to do our work. Very few of us are fortunate enough to feel completely fulfilled in, in, in the professional environment at a spiritual level, at a non-material level. And so you guys are, are fortunate. But when, when is it, you, you talked about, about dealing with billionaires, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to put this out there in a very uh, direct way. Is, is billionaire a bad word? What is it? I mean, how can someone have such concentration of wealth? And you've both been, you've dealt with lots of you have people even close to you in your lives that have that type of wealth. How is it ethical to have spent your life accumulating that type of wealth, assuming you didn't inherit it, and be a good actor in this world? Straight out, how how does that make sense? Can you elaborate on that question? Because wouldn't say how is it ethical? To do that and be a good person, I mean, if you're doing good stuff with a billion dollars, what's the issue? What's your question? Well, I guess well, that's a, that's a that's a great point. I guess if you're giving away 95% of it, then you just you know, you're you're acting as a redistributive mechanism in society. But I, let's assume. So your argument any, would be, oh, okay, you're saying that you would need to be giving away 95% of it to be to be good. If someone has a net worth of a couple billion dollars and they haven't given it away and kept, you know, a huge amount of money, $50 million, let's say, they keep for, for them and their children and they give the rest away, that's your issue. Your issue is not, is why at any point in time would a person be worth that much money and not give it away? To some extent, yes, and I'm playing an advocacy role with my point, but I mean, we've been, through, we're now going on 15 years in this country of the, you know, the, 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 the take back Wall Street movement, the, uh, there, there is a strong socialistic tendency for better, for worse in our political system. And I think there is a basic question there of is it ethical to have a system and does it match with living a good life? I mean, this, this we'll talk in the next segment a little bit about this week's section of the Bible, but there's a, there's almost like a, basic set of rules and is accumulating a billion dollars unless, again, you're acting as a redistributive mechanism and you're you know, making money in one place like Robin Hood and giving it away somewhere else, it, does it make sense that we have a system at, an, at, a, at a molecular level, at an individual level that would allow someone to accumulate that type of wealth? Right. So I, I guess there's, there's two different answers I would give, one from the capitalist perspective and one from the, the spiritual perspective, right? So from the, from the capitalist perspective... I think that the alternative is worse, and that as far as the, the game goes, where we're all trying to make as much money as we could, and there are certain people who are uh, wildly successful, which means that they're adding massive amounts of value there, I think it's a good thing. You know, people talk about Bezos, for example, worth $200 billion, and is it ethical for someone to be worth $200 billion? And I could agree with Vasu that most probably all billionaires are a little bit crazy, and, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? There's a Hasidic master which said there are three absolute truths in life. One is that if you drink, you'll get drunk. So if you see someone who drank and isn't drunk, give them more alcohol and they'll be drunk. The second is that if you have money, you'll go crazy. And if you see someone who has money and isn't crazy, give him more money and he'll go crazy. And the third is that if you learn Hasidic philosophy, you'll become a refined spiritual human being. And if someone has done that, then learn more Hasidic spiritual philosophy, and you'll get there. But that second one, yeah, it probably does make someone crazy, but let's talk about what would happen if 
Bezos was satisfied at a billion dollars. In the 90s, Bezos was a billionaire. If he didn't have that drive, that insatiable drive to create tremendous amount of value, you wouldn't have all of his investors make the money, and you also would not have a, a system. Think about coronavirus without Amazon. What, what would that be like if we couldn't order stuff online and get it within a day or two? You'd either have massive spread or pandemonium. We kind of have both anyway, but it would be much worse. So that's from the capitalist perspective. From the spiritual perspective, I think, yes, it could be great to bring in a lot of money and then do massive amounts of, of good with it. And a billionaire is able to do that. It's able to do massive amounts of good. What their house should look like, I don't have the problem with the accumulation of wealth. Where I struggle more is with the personal expenditure of wealth. Right? So not that someone has a billion dollars, but do you need eight homes that are each worth $100 million? You know, is, is that – I can't imagine justifying that and being spiritual and, or godly in any way. That's very tough. But in terms of the accumulation of wealth, I think it should be celebrated. So to take a little bit of a hackneyed summary of what you just said, Ellie, you believe effectively in kind of the – the beneficence of the capitalist system. It, obviously, there are extremes you're talking about in terms of consumption, but you don't have any issue with the accumulation itself. And I and I, I hear you. I think I would probably agree. Basu, what are you? Are you in agreement with that? Do you think differently? I I, I agree with the premise, right? Like I, I think if you're going to have a com- a country where you want people to come and build the greatest companies and be, you know, as innovative as possible. You can't really cap uh, the money that people can make. I, I do think that, in general, you, you have to let people make money. However, I think the redistribution of that wealth in some way, shape, or form is, is probably in the best interest, uh, right? I, I think there's a fine line between sort of having some progressive views about this and being and saying that we're going to fall into socialism, right? I, I don't think that... Most people in the Democratic Party today, even though they're painted as being socialist, like they have some socialist ideas, but they're not saying, you know, let's let's go be Russia or Romania. Like, no, that's not that's not where we're headed. We're not trying to be uh, any of those countries. Um, I, and so I think that I, I look at it this way. I say if Bezos has two hundred billion dollars and he's built that company on the back of people that are making that we're making $7 an hour now, you know, they claim that it's up to 15 um, You know, is that fair is the question. And I struggle with the answer to that. Now, oftentimes I say I was an entrepreneur myself, um, and, and I say, well, you know, in, in order to build a profitable business at some point, you you got to cut corners somewhere, and oftentimes that ends up being, well, you know, if somebody's willing to do this job for $7, that's what a free market is, and so that's what we're going to bring on. But on the flip side of that, I say, I mean, $200 billion is just such an insane amount of money for one man to have and for it to have been built on the back of people that put their, their bodies on the line every day working and delivering and, and doing all that work, while really what we as entrepreneurs and venture, cap, venture capitalists are, you know, we're, we're paper pushers, right? We, we move money and wires from one account to another, that's really what we do, and and so we we in many ways build our our bank account on the back of people that are doing hard work, uh, and they don't really get to share in any of that wealth. So to me, 
I feel like companies need to have some sort of system where at a certain level, and I don't know where you draw that line, right? That's the hard thing. How do you say, well, it should be $2 billion or $4 billion or $8 billion or $200 billion where you draw the line? But somewhere there needs to be a line, I think, where you are not able to make that much money on the back of people who are struggling to have the basic necessities and or, you know, we, we have to do this in some sort of progressive system through the tax code without, again, turning into a, a socialist country. I, I do believe that there are ways that you can do some small things like universal basic income and things like that that will help uh, you know, the, the, the very poorest of poor people um, get get a leg up in life, and and I think we can all afford to do that. You know, if you if you told me you have to tax me another another three to five percent, but it meant that there would be no one homeless in New York, like I'm on board with that. Maybe that's just me, but Vasu, can we can we drill a little bit into the numbers on 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 this Bezos analogy with on the back of um, people making less money? Amazon has a million employees. Right, that's a number, a million employees. Let's, let's say for argument's sake, right, your argument is that everyone should make a dollar an hour more, which is almost, which is, you would assume if the $15 go to 16, then the 22 would go to 23, and the 50 would go to 51. That would be $40 million a week extra pay. Times 52 weeks, you're, you're over $10 billion. Amazon made last year, and it was one of the first years they were profitable, $10 billion. So while it sounds good in theory to take Amazon's, you say, $200 billion and $15, and, and, and $15 an hour, it doesn't actually work to split it up. You, you've benefited people very little, and you've, um, and you've destroyed not the wealth of one person. You've destroyed the drive of a person. Let me ask you a different question. Do you think the average Amazon employee, if you ask them as consumers of Amazon, would you rather Amazon didn't exist at all, because that's what the, the actual price to pay, or have an extra um, $500 in your pocket a year? Let me ask you that question. What would, what would it be worth for you for Amazon not to exist? What would it be worth for you for Apple not to exist, for any of these companies that are driven by uh, a person who wants to accumulate this massive amounts of wealth. Yeah, no. Look, it's it's a it's a very fair question, right? I'd turn around and say, well, what if they charged a hundred dollars instead of ninety nine for Amazon Prime? Are they going to lose a single customer? And would they would they now be able to potentially foot that bill? Maybe I I don't know. But, but let's I, do I the math. Let's say let's no. It, let's do the math. You have two three hundred million Amazon subscribers. So yeah. if you charge them a dollar more a year, you have two three hundred million dollars. You take that, divide it by a million employees, how much do you have? $4 a week you can give people? So I say the numbers don't actually work to split it up in, in that way. And my, but we're getting off a little bit into a different conversation. I just think that it's from the pure, the pure math of it. With the issue I have, you mentioned in, in terms of people driving to socialism, I have a different problem with it. I think that all of us, Vasu, you, Dove, Every, most of society is driving towards success, financial success, and the happiness and purpose and everything else. But we all want that. We all want the better job, the better car, the better house, to provide privileges, quote-unquote, for our family and our children. Why, why are we okay that it's become a bad word in society? Why are we okay that you mentioned the, Demo the, the, 
um, the Democrats not wanting socialism, why are we okay then in the Democratic National Convention when, um, not the, the convention, the, um, the debates where it was mentioned about one of the con- candidates that they have wealth, that they started apologizing for it? Shouldn't we be proud of that success? Isn't that what we want? And then, of course, we can teach values to people who earn that much money and say, hey, it would be a really nice thing to care about people. You mentioned the, Guys, the, the $2 this, billion dollar this, home. This is exactly what, that, what we wanted to get into the show, is the personal drive to bring it back to that connection between material pursuit and spiritual life. Hold that thought, guys. We're going to take a quick break. And you feel free to call in and ask our esteemed guest, Basu Kalkarni and Ellie Nash, any questions you've got in your mind about luxury and the spiritual life. Is material pursuit consistent with spiritual life? That's the topic on the table tonight. You're on equal footing with Dove Tuzman. The number is 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. We'll be right back. Equal Footing is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skin care. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, MDCS Dermatology provides the most advanced surgical and non-surgical skin treatments in the New York metro area. The dermatologists and skin cancer surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So, Schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient Long Island or Manhattan locations. Go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM, where you can schedule an in-person visit or a virtual video visit from the comfort and safety of your own home. That's www.mdcs.live or 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. All right, you're back on the air with equal footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. Our guests are Ellie Nash and Basu Kulkarni. The subject on the table is luxury and God. Is material pursuit consistent with a spiritual life? I want to give a shout out to our great engineer <laughs> uh, here at uh, Equal Footing, Dimitri, who helped with some sound issues as we were getting started. Ellie and Vasu, I hope you're still on. Again, our number for calling in is 718-303-9090. The question on the table before we took the break was, if I could paraphrase a little bit, Ellie, is the issue of drive. Putting aside issues of taxation, redistributive policy, socialism versus unbridled capitalism, to what extent is the drive itself, the ambition itself for material accumulation, a hindrance or a help on the spiritual path? And I think with that paraphrasing, Ellie was kind of putting that question to you, Vasu. (laughs) 
but I, here's another way to look at it, right? So every when you when you just look statistically at entrepreneurs, because I, I work primarily with early stage startups, right? And if if the percentage chance of you making any money off of your startup is roughly probably under 1%, right? That's really what it is. 99% of startups fail in the first two years. And yet, all these people go at it. And and it's hard for me to believe that they're all doing this because of material pursuit. Because if it was purely due to material pursuit, then then you're better off not trying to go build a startup. You're better off going to a bank and, and working your way up, and you'll probably be making several million dollars a year by the time you're in your 30s. You have a very cushy life, and you're good to go. Um, and, and so I think that with, with a lot of these early-stage companies, like the, these founders are driven by something else. It's not just money. And I can tell you that, you know, for personally, I'm not saying money doesn't play a big role in it, but I don't think it's the only thing. And so... I also don't say, I wouldn't say that if you started to cap how much someone could make and you sort of took away a big part of the potential outcome that someone could have, that they wouldn't be nearly as driven to build amazing companies and great products and change lives. I do think that there are many people who are mission driven. There's many people who are, who just, you know, feel that they have a purpose here to build something that either makes the world better, and that doesn't have to be like helping the poor. I mean, I think that there's just products that people make. I mean, if you ask me about Steve, I, I never met Steve Jobs, but if you ask me, I, I don't think that Steve Jobs was driven by making billions of dollars. I really think that Steve Jobs was driven by building beautiful products that everyone used, and it changed the way they did things. Um, sure, I'm sure he enjoyed his billions and billions of dollars, but... I don't think that that's primarily what motivated him. And so I, I do think that there is a path where you can sort of want to build something great and make money from it, but be sort of more spiritual about it in, in, in sort of wanting to achieve something greater that affects many, many millions of people and get happiness from that rather than from the, the money that ends up in your bank account. So, so Vasu, I want to make sure... I want to make sure I'm understanding what Vasu was saying. Are you saying that someone like Steve Jobs, who was motivated, obviously was motivated and driven by something other than money, despite the fact that money is nice, yep. e- even if you took away 98% of his wealth, he would still be just as driven. We would not lose out any of the benefit in society that he or Bezos or someone else creates. Are you saying that? I, I wouldn't say you would lose, you, you wouldn't lose any of it, right? But I'm also saying you're not, I don't think you would have lost the bulk of it. I still think they would have built incredible products that would have changed our lives. Um, and and the, no, look, the number, the 98 is, is an arbitrary number, right? Like, I don't know what that number is. It, it could be 50, 70, 90. I don't know where the, the line is, and there's probably no way to know where that line is, but I do believe fundamentally that you could take away a chunk of that, and I don't think it would have affected the products that they built. So, so here's part. Here's the here's the spiritual dilemma that's on the table. There, there are really two schools of thought around the way that material pursuit and money relates to spiritual life. One, I would argue, is pretty recent. We're talking about in the last 100 years. In the, I mean, I come from a Jewish frame of reference, but everyone's welcome in this dialogue. And in the last 100 years, you've seen, particularly within the fundamentalist uh, Christian community 
a association with material abundance and spiritual abundance that's been explicit. And that movement started not probably, not surprisingly, out of the Great Depression, where you had uh, you, you had proselytizers and uh, and 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 fundamentalist uh, ministers and pastors, primarily starting in kind of the Dust Bowl, the hardest part that was part of the country in the United States hit by the Great Depression, who was talking about measuring your spiritual growth. In financial growth, and in in recent years, you have you know books like the pursuit of money is a spiritual journey, the spiritual side of money, and so there's actually not only is there an acceptance of the coexistence of material pursuit and spirituality, but there's almost a uh, hearkening to uh, seeing it as actually a sinecure that you know if you are ambitious, if you are trying to accumulate wealth, you're actually doing something that's actually accumulate for lack of a better way of putting it, your spiritual points too. You're becoming a better person. Now that's at odds, one could argue, with thousands of years of spiritual dictates and religious law in pretty much, whether you're talking about a Judeo-Christian perspective or you're talking about an Eastern perspective, where in many there, there are many great teachers in all traditions who have looked at asceticism and renunciation and poverty as more conducive to spiritual upliftment. And that's that's really, I think, the essence. And we don't like to say it that way, that in a, as starkly as I just put it. But to some extent, I believe, I'm going to put out there, that we all struggle with that a little bit. Because we kind of have thousands of years of programming, if you will, if you want to think about it in a more scientific way around meme theory, we have thousands of years of memes, of ideas that are kind of coursing through our society that say, you know, poverty is, there's something noble about it. And then there's a more recent kind of full acceptance of the capitalist ideal where there have actually been religious actors that have said, no, quite the opposite, like going out there and, and doing good and making good are kind of the same thing. And at risk of making either of you uncomfortable, where do you stand on that? Which is it? Because it can't be both, right? What do you think, Ellie? I can tell you my personal uh, discomfort. So it's not even opinions. It's just what, like what I feel in my bones. So like I mentioned earlier, in terms of the accumulation of wealth, I think that there's a lot of um, good that could be done with that. There's a lot of power in it. Warren Buffett, for for example, um, and I, I take issue with him, by the way. I take issue with a, a point he made about not giving charity in his 40s because he can do more with the money uh, compounded over 40 years than someone else could. And I was like, okay, but there's someone hungry today. What are you going to do about it? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to assume that he changed his mind and he disagree, his 80-year-old version of him disagrees with the 40-year-old version, but he, he created the billionaire pledge. And he got a lot of people focused on causes and focused on putting tremendous amount of money to use because he was a billionaire. <laughs> he would not have been able to encourage those other people if he wasn't one of them. So we see that over and over. And in my own life, um, I've, I've, I've done a fair amount of activism work. For several years, I was very focused on combating child sex abuse in the, in the Orthodox Jewish communities through an organization called Jewish Community Watch. Recently, I've been very vocal about a multi-year struggle with porn addiction. And I really feel that the reason that I had a voice in those arenas was because people perceived me as having financial success. Right, right. So discounting that, I think, is dangerous. 
and someone who has that using that like the responsibility that I feel with that is powerful on the other hand that's the accumulation of it when it comes to actually spending on myself I struggle greatly and every time I do I feel the need to give something away I have a much easier time spending on on other people than I do on myself and others I mean charity more than anything else yeah, I mean, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about your backgrounds, and th- these are two extraordinary gentlemen that we have on the phone with us here on Equal Footing. The number to call in is 718-303-9090 at 718-303-9090. We do have some calls waiting. I appreciate your patience. You can also text me a question if you have... Uh, if you're shy and you don't want to be on the air, 917-428-4062. This is Dove Tuzman. Vasukul Karni, I want to turn it to you. You're, you, in addition to being this self-proclaimed biggest basketball fan in the world, and I know both you and Ellie would love to have this show be about basketball instead of about uh, <laughs> money and spirituality, you've, you're a serial successful entrepreneur, right? You founded uh, Crossover, an analytics software company out of your dorm room at Penn. Uh, you sold Crossover. Now you launched and, and run Courtside Ventures, a venture capital firm focusing on sports and fitness and gaming. In your spare time, you build big companies. I mean, you and I share a passion for the watch in the watch industry, and you have a company called Wax that's out there and having good success around insuring uh, people's watch collections. So, you know, you you guys both come from a position of, of privilege. I want to put you on the spot. And I'm saying I'm not saying you grew up privileged, but now you're in a position of privilege. And I don't say that with anything negative imbued. I want to put you on the spot. Is pursuit of wealth does it make you a better person, or do you have to kind of combat it in a sense and be a good person in spite of your pursuit of wealth, Vasu? <laughs> That's a hell of a question. Um, That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, before I answer that, you know, I just want to touch on what Ellie said about uh, Warren Buffett. I got to spend a day with Warren a couple years ago, which was uh, a fascinating day. The guy had cracked open about seven cans of Coke before lunch. We're all looking at him like, how is this guy alive? Um, <laughs> and, he, and, 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 he, and he says to us, I own 9% of Coke. If you're sitting at this table, everybody better crack open a can because I get like, I get four cents for every can. <laughs> Some crazy comment like that. One of the funniest things that, you know, the, the flip side of that, and I agree with you, Ellie, like saying, hey, I always found that quote of his to be like, wow, this, this guy's got <laughs> such big balls to, to say that it's better to, for him to keep keep all of that money and continue to grow it because he can have greater impact with the compounding effect of his investments. Meanwhile, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a guy named Chuck Feeney. Um, he's the guy who started duty-free shops in airports. This guy, I think, accumulated about yeah, he, he accumulated about 30 to $40 billion worth of, of wealth, and he quietly gave every penny away. There's a book called The Billionaire Who Wasn't, and it's really about how it's, at a certain point he was still listed on the Forbes list as having tens of billions of dollars, and the reality is he had actually given almost all of it away uh, through, through various charities and, and, and institutions that he had set up. And, and I, I remember reading that book, and sort of being so inspired by by what he had done so quietly, um, but and and so you know to answer your question, I I I don't think that I am a you know that that I can't be a good person 
because I am trying to accumulate wealth because um, – well, I didn't ask I you, I, I hate interrupting, but I didn't ask you if you can't be. I'm asking you, is that pursuit of wealth conducive to you being a better person, or is it an inhibitor for you being a better person? Right, right. Um, well, the, the question is, like, would I be doing something significantly better with my time if I wasn't working, right? I, I think that's what it really comes down to. Like, if I didn't have to be on all these phone calls, all these Zoom meetings, and doing all these things every day, would I be doing something significantly more productive for society with my time, or would I not, right? And I don't know the answer to that because I haven't been in a position where I've sat down and said, okay, I'm not going to work anymore. What will I do to help humanity? Uh, part of me feels like my obsession with basketball will result in me, you know, potentially spending a lot more time playing basketball. Perhaps I would help kids uh, by training them or running inner city program. Maybe I would do some of that stuff. I don't know. And so I can't say that this is inhibiting me from being a better person or a more spiritual person because I don't actually know what I would necessarily do with my time otherwise. And so I, you know, I would like to say that I don't think it is inhibiting me necessarily. I'm hopeful that um, you know, the more money that I make and, and the more successful that I am, the louder my voice would be. Um, you know, I've been very outspoken um, about a lot of the things going on in this country. One of the, 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 the reasons I get a lot of flack on social media is because of how, how much I'm willing to scream and, and say things. Um, and, and so I'm hopeful that the, the bigger my footprint gets and my audience gets, if I can change a couple of lives because of uh, the audience that I have and the platform that I have, which unfortunately in this world tends to come more from being successful in business than in anything else, um, then hopefully that will help me to be a better person uh, because of the wealth and not in spite of it. All right. So, Ellie, same question to you, maybe put a little bit differently. Is money a spiritual asset? Can it be? I think there's no question that on a personal level it's a challenge. It makes it more difficult. It's like, can you be more spiritual, you know, in nature, not surrounded by anyone, not interacting with anyone, not worried about the pursuit of life, just making sure, not the, not the pursuit of much else other than food and basic necessities. You can certainly feel more spiritual. <laughs> That's for sure. But in terms of actually doing something meaningful, spirituality in the sense of doing good in the world, uh, there's no, I think that money and influence and power help that, assist that. So that's the challenge, right? The challenge is how does one not lose themselves in that world? But money certainly could be. You know, from a, um, I've, I've grew up learning Hasidic philosophy and I still study it from time to time and one of the Hasidic masters said that when you take charity and give it away, you've turned a coin into fire. And his explanation for that is that all of our life force energy is imbued in our money. I mean, if you think about the, the time, the focus, the, the dedication that's needed in order to earn money, it doesn't come free when everyone is fighting for It doesn't come easy when everyone's fighting. So there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears like part of our guts are in that money, and here we are going and giving it to someone else is very powerful. But it's also a challenge to keep our wits about us when we're when we're in the pursuit. 
There's it? no question about it. A constant challenge, and that's what this show is about. We're going to take a break in a minute. We've got a couple of great, tough questions, guys, so gird yourself, that have come in on text, and we have a caller waiting in the line as well, a couple callers, so thank you for being patient, guys. You're on equal footing with Dove Tusman. I'm here with my wonderful guests, Vasu Kulkarni and Ellie Nash, successful entrepreneurs. We're talking about the balance between material pursuit and spiritual life. I'm going to leave you guys in this segment with a quote from this section of the Bible, the, the section that we read this this week. For the mitzvah, the good deed, which I command you this day, it is not beyond you, nor is it remote from you. It isn't in heaven. It's not across the sea. Rather, it's very close to you, in your mouth, in your heart. I'm going to add in your pocket, given the topic of the show, that you may do it. So this is a practical question because we are practically every day getting up, going to work. Many of us strictly, other of us in, in more subtle ways, you know, pursuing in material pursuit. And yet we're also, of course, trying to live in a, in a spiritually meaningful way. That's the question on the table. You're on equal footing with Dove Tusman, number 718-303-9090. We'll be right back. Equal Footing is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, MDCS Dermatology combines state-of-the-art technology with a personalized and friendly approach to skincare for adults and children. Whether you need medical treatment or have a cosmetic concern, the doctors at MDCS will provide you with the best treatment options. Go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376 to schedule an appointment today. Here's what patients have to say about MDCS Dermatology. Charles from Garden City says, The balance of patient care and COVID-19 safety was perfect. I went straight from my car to the exam room and skipped the receptionist and waiting room. Ellie from Great Neck says, Dr. Garshik was the most thorough dermatologist I've ever seen for my annual skin cancer screening. Jennifer from Long Beach says, I had a brown mole removed from my forehead and now I have perfect skin. Thank you, Dr. Bernstein. So, schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient Long Island or Manhattan locations, or schedule a virtual video visit from the comfort and safety of your own home with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists by clicking on Virtual Visit at www.mdcs.live. Call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been caught. Good evening. You're back on Equal Footing with Dove Tusman, my guests Eliyahu Nash and Basu Kulkarni. Guys, you ready for this one? Don't take don't take offense. It's right. It's good good for our, our ego to every once in a while have to. Uh, Sublimate. You're, this is a this is an anonymous text. They want to stay anonymous, so I'm going to oh, respect God. that. <laughs> Your guests tonight sound a little entitled. How are they going to teach the right values to their children now that they are rich? I'm not going to have any, so there we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ellie, I know you've already started down that path. How are you going to do that? <laughs> you know, I'd, it, it, answering the question means I agree with the premise. So, 
I don't know. Unless, unless someone says it and backs it up, I'm not going to respond. Do you think, though, you know, I grew, I grew up in a... Vasa, you said it very well. I can't remember whether it was on the show or when we were chatting before the show. I mean, you had what you needed, but you didn't have any no fringe benefits growing up. And right. uh, you know, my my parents were both social workers, and my mom's a writer, and you know, we didn't have any extra money at all. I had to, you know, the proverbial work your way through college and all that. There was, you know, I, I knew that as soon as I was able to, uh, not to mention mowing lawns and and doing side jobs, but you know, I was fourteen. Onwards, but I knew the moment I was out of the house, I, was, I had to be financially responsible for myself. And I do ask my question. I'm a father, and I ask myself that question: Is there value actually to that hard scrabble? I mean, I wasn't growing up in abject poverty, not to, just to not exaggerate. But is there value to kind of having to work for each each thing you achieve from an early point and not having anything given to you? I, I was always jealous, uh, you know, in college of the kids that that their parents were paying for college and they could just enjoy all their non-class time. But then in retrospect, I think actually it was good that I had to, to work my way through college. I think that's kind of a, a corollary to the question being asked and so maybe a little easier to address. So there's two parts to that. Number one, I, I said it earlier that um, in the four-day personal development retreat that I went to, what came out was this belief that raising children with money screws them up. So I understand where that's coming from. All, I, I grew up, I started my first business not to start a business. I started it in order to put myself through school. So very similar to that. But then, okay, so we take that person, we take, you know, you dove or myself, and you say, okay, you went through certain hard, uh, a hard period and it shaped who you are. But why are you saying it shaped who you are? Because you've been able to achieve some success. And why do we have... W- 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 why, why should that be walked away from? Why, there, why, do, why do we have to demonstrate nobility and, nobility and, and poverty? There's, it, it's not more than it is, but we also shouldn't make it less than it is. Right. Fair it's point. not everything money, but if, 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 someone, if someone achieves it and they're doing good things with it and they did it the right way, then what issue do we have with them? Why are we taking issue with them? It's a fair point, and I, and I think I'm, I'm expanding on the, the questioner's point, but... I think it's not so much about whether we take issue with it. The question that that nags at me is whether it's helpful to my spiritual life. I do believe in an accounting in the afterlife. Whatever I don't know whether we reincarnate. I don't know whether it's a heaven or hell. I don't. I don't know that. Of, of course, no one knows that. But I, I do feel in my gut that there's an accounting somehow. And we're in the month of Elul in the Jewish faith. And again, everyone's welcome on this uh, on this show. It's not a Jewish show. I just come to it with my frame of reference. And in the month of Elul, we do a bit, we do that accounting. It's before Yom Kippur. It's before that atonement that we do at the end of the year. And it is a self-accounting. And I believe we have a universal accounting. And so the question is not, should we take issue with somebody that is you know, accumul- accumulated wealth or living their life in some way oriented around material pursuit or in a large, in a large, pers- uh, uh, largely oriented around material pursuit. But is it helpful? It, it does it get us closer to God? Does it make us a better person? You know, I heard someone once. I heard someone once say, and I let Vasu step in because it is equal footing. So I don't want to dominate too much of the time. But you know, Judaism is very opposed to say. Um, Christianity, which is as uh, mainstream, has has taken away a lot of those laws. So, do laws help towards spirituality, or do they hurt towards spirituality? And I'm not observant today, but just in terms of the point, I heard a rabbi once explain that 
the challenge is to the challenge from Judaism is to match the two, right? Can you pray every single day from the from the same prayer book book and imbue that with the spirit? Can you follow a certain law that you're doing and imbue that with a deep spirit and deep meaning? Or is it only those things that come to us once in a while that are special that then we can feel are amazing? Can we view every sunrise that happens every single day as something special? Or is it only the wedding, the birth of the first child right, that gets this amazing wow from us? And to be able to balance those two, I think, is part of the challenge. We're here in this material world and can we do both? Can we not lose ourselves in the money? But there's no question that it's a challenge. And I've wanted to walk away from it on multiple occasions. I did not come I, I wanted to make money. I did not want to make the amount of money I did. And many times, consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously, I've pushed it away. I've pushed it away. But I've also realized that there are certain things that I've been able to do in the world that are direct correlation to not only what money is able to do, but society perceiving money as the ultimate success and therefore get, um, granting people who have that with a certain amount of influence. And when those people take that responsibility on also, they can do serious good. And I don't think there's any reason to shy away from that. Yeah, and it's, like, it's almost like money is energy. It's not intrinsically good or, or bad. We've had, we've had some callers that have been incredibly patient, guys, been waiting for a lot of the show. I'm going to... Uh, take the caller on line three. You're on the air. I think you're calling it from IP telephones. I don't know where you're calling from, but welcome to On Equal Footing. Hello? Yes. Hi, you're on Hi, air. this is Stan from Forest Hills. How are you? Stan, how are you? Uh, I'm not a Christian, but let's go down memory lane with Jesus Christ. I'm not a Christian. I'm Jewish. Christ asked this gentleman, he asked Lazarus, uh, he said, you know, Lazarus, can I join you? He said, well, you're a wealthy man. He said, well, you cannot have two masters. Money, if you may be a burden. And if it's a burden, you can't function. You can, you can not only have God or you can have money. You can have both. But, of course, with Christ, it was one or the other. He basically said, if you're with me, you would you be willing to give up your wealth? And the guy hesitated. He said, well, that's the, that's the question. It could be a burden. To these gentlemen, to some extent, before they had money, did they have morality? Did they have a sense? And then when they got money, then did they develop morality? Usually that is the case with billionaires. You don't know about them, well, you don't hear let's, about let's, them, and then they develop question. a sense of morality. Do these gentlemen, did they develop morality in a sense of concern after? Let's let's put this to, to Vasu. Vasu, okay, has money sure. changed you? You've had tremendous success. Are you different from before and after? Um, I, I'd like to think no, but there's a reason for that, and that's because, you know, like, for me, the thing that has grounded me my entire life has been the game of basketball, right? Like, everything in my life revolves around it. It gives me more joy than, than anything else. You'll never see me more excited than in, in the last second of, of a basketball game and there's a buzzer beater. Like, that gives me more joy than all the money in the world, any watch that I've ever bought. Like, comes close to me than the excitement and the joy of, of being on basketball court and being there watching it, it it sort of it has grounded me and so I, I always give the example and I say look if if I had been incredibly unsuccessful 
all, all I really need to be happy in life beyond sort of two square meals a day and a roof over my head is enough money to pay my dues at the Equinox on the Upper West Side so that I can get in there and I can play a pickup basketball game. So I need I need two hundred and twenty five dollars a month and I'm a happy camper. Right. And, and, and look, I'm I'm certainly a weird, weird, quirky person that. The, whose entire life has revolved from the time I was three year old, three years old around this sport that you know I'm not even that great at. Like I certainly had no chance of ever playing pro basketball, but I'm you know I'm pretty pretty damn good pickup basketball player, and I'm just happy with that. And so I I don't think that money has changed me. I hope that with more money, I've been able to give more. I've been able to support organizations. I've had more time. I've been able to hopefully you give advice to some people that for whatever reason want to want to hear my my voice and and give them hope uh on you know, the fact that somebody could come from India who thought he was going to play professional basketball and end up still building a business in sports and continuing to do what he loves every day i hope that there are kids for whom the dream of playing professional basketball never ends up panning out but they look at what i was able to do and they say you know what, there's a blueprint there for how I can follow my dreams and my passion and still make a living doing something that I'm, I, I, I am incredibly passionate about. That's what I hope that I can do from the money. But on a day-to-day basis, I don't think my life has changed. Yes, I've bought some stupid stuff I probably don't need, but like, I don't think that makes me a bad person. I think that overall, I'm, I'm the same guy who gets the exact same amount of joy from basketball that I did when I was 10 years uh, old. So, Vasu, it sounds like you feel that you are the same person at essence before and after, and that that's great. And I think that's important for a lot of listeners to hear that that's possible with someone who's had your measure of success in the material world. Stan, thank you, as always, for your call and your insightful question. I'm going to try to squeeze in uh, one or two more last questions. We have another text here. Um, this is Daisy in Massachusetts that's asking about expenditures in daily life at what point are they wasteful so ellie that's a tough one uh, yeah i don't i don't quite know the answer to the question um i can tell you that from a practical standpoint i've probably wasted more money on charity than anything else Whatever that, wow. whatever that means. And that because but it wasn't effective. It wasn't effective. Yeah, just spent, right, just in, right, just ineffective charity. Right, that's fascinating. Charity, or I had an organization that I was supporting very heavily, and we found out that the CEO was stealing from the organization. So instead of we were thought we were helping children who uh, needed therapy and other stuff related to child sex abuse, and a lot of it was going to fund, amongst other things, a trip to Atlantic City to gamble. But the CEO, so that that we can agree is wasteful, right? So I'm, I'm but I'm when I look at my life, those are the, the the areas where I see the most waste, ironically. So I don't I don't know I don't know what it means. I have to have something specific attached to it. But I think what you said earlier about money being energy—it's neither good nor bad. It's it's energy, and there's no question, it's a very powerful energy, and it can consume us, and it can also consume other people. Well, this is a great note to end on. This has been a great show. I really appreciate Vasu and Ellie, you guys being frank and open about the balance between material pursuit and spiritual life. I'm sorry for those callers and texters we weren't able to get to. We'll be on equal footing next week at 7 o'clock Eastern. Have a wonderful week. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Take care. I've been caught.